Okay, are we ready? All right, let's start with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we give you praise and thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, I ask that you would um, be with us um, as we study your word. Lord, I ask that you would be with me, help my mind to settle down a little bit and um, my, that I would be calm and that I would be able to think with clarity and that um, your spirit would fill me and that it would overflow out of my mouth. Lord, I just pray for your blessing on this time together. I pray for each of us in this room that we would um, be changed through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are looking at the church of the living God, right? The church of the living God is God's household. It is the pillar and buttress of truth, standing firm in a world that actually hates the truth. The truth that we hold fast to is God's word. Last week, we saw that the priority of both the pastor and the people of God is to be the word of God, both in our private lives and in the public worship assembly. Jesus said, until I come, be devoted to God's word. Immerse yourself in it. Practice it. Persist in it. This word of God, the words of the faith and the good doctrine that we are being trained in, we saw last week, is the very means by which the Lord Jesus Christ is transforming his household, his people, into people who bear the family resemblance. And this is what we're seeing this week in the scripture, um, in our scripture text. What does it look like to be a member of God's household? What does, how do we look? How do we act? How do we conduct ourselves? as members of God's household. So once again, the instructions God gives to Timothy through Paul as the one who is the head of the household. And Timothy's responsibility is to oversee that the members of his household know the word of God, know these instructions, and then to walk in that. So there are four specific things that we're going to look at in our text today. We're going to look at the relationships that we have within the household of God. We're going to look at our responsibilities or the responsibilities toward widows within the household of God. We're going to look at rules for the administration of God's household. And we're going to look at the regard that slaves have towards their masters within the household of God. So let's get started with 1 Timothy 5 in verse 1. 1 Timothy 5 verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Father, mother, sisters, brothers, these words tell us what we are to to one another as members of the household of God. We are siblings. We are family It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we've been called into to be the family of God, members in God's household. So how does one become a member of the household of God? We looked at this last week. I'm going to quickly review that. In John 1, 9 through 12, we learn, but to all who did receive him, 
all who receive Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in his name, believe means to put your faith and trust in him. He gave them the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To become a member of the household of God is to be born again, to be born of God, to be born by the will of God. As he calls people to himself, those who receive him, those who hear of Jesus and believe in his name, putting their faith and trust in him, confessing with their mouth what they believe in their heart, that God has raised him from the dead. These are the ones that are members of the household of God. This is how one becomes a child of God. And what is the significance of being a member in God's household? Well, you have God as your father. He is your heavenly father. You have Jesus as your older brother, scripture teaches us. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Our father who is in heaven. Jesus describes the members of his household in this way. He said, who is my mother and who is my brother? And looking about to those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is to be a member of God's household, to have God as your father, to have Jesus as your brother, your good older brother. And it is the place of God's care, protection, and provision. It is the place where we are nurtured and grow into the image of Jesus, our elder brother. This is the place, the people of God, where we learn to bear the family resemblance. So how are we, as members of the same household, to relate, to interact, to relate with one another? Well, we do so, according to our text, in honor and purity. Let's look again, let's look again at verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all Purity. Paul's charge to Timothy is rooted in a long history of honor, of honoring mother and father, which is built into the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 12 says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land. Throughout the book of Proverbs, there is frequent emphasis on the joint respect and honor that is given to both father and mother. Proverbs 1, 8 says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 23, 22 says, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. And this biblical pattern stands in sharp contrast to the societal norms of the ancient Roman world. This idea of honoring both father and mother. In the ancient Roman world, fathers were uniquely privileged and empowered by comparison with the mothers. But within the household of God, the biblical pattern of honoring father and mother is to be continued. So let's pause for just a moment to talk a little bit about what honor means. In the ancient um, cultural context that we're looking into in scripture, that context was an honor-shame culture. 
We don't live in that context anymore, at least in this part of the world. So it does, it takes a little bit of work to figure out what that means and what that looks like. But in, in the honor and shame um, context, it was a communal thing. It's community honor. It's community shame. Public honor was an important cultural value, and public shame would have been devastating. Shame is a social word and has social implications. It's a little different than guilt. Shame is about how others will see us. It has to do with our standing before others. To be humiliated or defiled before others is to be shamed. The opposite of shame is honor. Like shame, honor in the Bible typically has a communal, even public meaning. In other words, honor is something that is recognized or bestowed by the community. And as a baseline definition, to honor means to esteem and to treat another with respect because of who they are and what they've done. Honor has the sense of value, price, or quality. That which is valued and esteemed is honored. So in our text, while the word honor is not in the verses 1 and 2, the idea of honor is in the passage. When he calls on older men and women to be treated as mothers and fathers, there is honor that is embedded within that, that command. So Timothy, as the pastor, is to treat the congregation as his family. The older men and the older women in the church are to be viewed as you would your own mother and father. They're to be respected and honored in the same way that Scripture teaches mothers and fathers are to be respected. This will affect even how you would confront an older person who is in sin, and that would have had to have happened at some point in time because older men and women still sin, do they not? And so they still need to be confronted in, in their sin, but it would not be done in a shaming way. The word rebuke in the text carries with it harshness. So Timothy, if he is to confront an older man, because of something in his life, he's not to do that in harshness, but rather in a way that is intended to encourage the older man or the older woman to life and to godliness. So older men and older women are to be treated with honor and respect in the community as you would your own mother and father, but also the younger women and men are to be treated as brothers and sisters, the, the text says, in all purity, in absolute purity is what the NIV says. To honor each other as brothers and sisters is to treat one another in purity, to be pure in the way you act towards each other. And this is speaking not just of just purity in our motives and in our character, but sexual purity as well. You honor one another as you treat each other with purity sexually. Not making one another a sexual object, in other words. Now, I think it is appropriate to acknowledge at this point that there has been within the church today a huge failing in this area, in the part of leaders 
and the part of the way congregations treat one another. We don't do this in all purity. I want to acknowledge the reality of the failure of the church to uphold this level of purity that we see in God's word. And I want to acknowledge the reality that because of this failure, there have been many who've been devastated, hurt. Lives have been destroyed because pastors and leaders have abused their position of authority and not acted in honor and purity to members of their congregation. But even as we acknowledge this reality, I want us to see together that this is deviant behavior. This is not behavior that is approved of by the church, by the word of God. This is not happening under God's approval. God does not turn a blind eye to it. It's evil. And it's sin against God himself, who has entrusted the care of his people to men. And when they abuse that trust, he will call them to account. It would be better for a millstone to be hung around the neck and they thrown into a sea than for anyone to harm one of God's beloved sons or daughters. That's what scripture teaches us. They will be called to account. But scripture shows us a better way. And when we see the deviation from the word of God, we need to go back to the word of God and see how God intended things to happen. And he intends for his people to be cared for and to be honored in all purity. Whether from leaders to the congregation or the way in which we interact with one another. Let's continue on. We are relating to each other as family, so we are family because we are part of the household of God. Let's look at the responsibility of the family, of the household of God, to widows within the congregation. Verse 3 says, honor widows who are truly widows. So let's talk a little bit about widows, what a widow is, what God's care, what God's heart is for the widow. We as a family of God are being called to honor those within our congregation that are widows, to place value on them, to care and support them. Caring for widows in scripture is a religious and holy duty. James 1.27 says, says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what's significant about widows? Well, across the Roman world, as in much of the world today, women whose husbands died could find themselves with no means of support, especially if their children were not able or willing to lend a hand in their upkeep. We must remember what it meant in that time period, what it means maybe even today, to become a disciple of Jesus. It often resulted in ostracism from your family right? Whether it would be Jewish families or Gentile families, it didn't matter. To become a follower of Jesus at times meant you were completely cut off 
from your family, not by the person who became a follower of Jesus' fault, not because they desire it, but because of their family, shove them away. Jesus said in Mark 10, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. So I'm going to stop it right there because he goes on to say, that if you've left all of this for me, you will be given 100-fold in my kingdom. But the acknowledgement is here that the cost of discipleship is everything. You may lose everything on this earthly side of things. There is a cost to following Jesus. And it's acknowledged in this text that these widows may have been abandoned by their own families. Widows who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord may find themselves without family to care for them and support them. But God will not abandon his children. Jesus went on to say in that passage in Mark, Truly I say to you, I'm going to read it again for context. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus is saying, when you leave it all behind in this life, you will lose, but you will gain a hundredfold. And he's talking about his household, the household of God. When you leave everything behind, you are given multiplicity of mothers and fathers, of sisters and brothers when you enter into the household of God. Psalm 68, 6, this is this beautiful verse. This is God sets the lonely in families. Have you ever been lonely? Abandoned by your own family, whether emotionally or physically. God sees. He sees you. And he has given you family in the people of God. He sets the lonely in family. And this is what Jesus is showing us, telling us what it means to follow him. There is a cost, yes, but the reward is to be a part of the household of God. And so God is extremely concerned about widows. And this is a repeated theme throughout the entirety of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament. Listen to the heart of God. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. God has a heart for the widow. Zechariah 7 verse 10 says, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This is just a small sampling of passages of Scripture where we see God's heart for the widow, but you can look and find it everywhere. 
the books of Moses or the prophets. Look in the Psalms and the Proverbs, the four Gospels, or the book of Acts, and the letters to the churches in the New Testament. You will not be able to read very far in any of these areas of Scripture without the subject of widows coming up. There are about 80 direct references to widows in the Scripture. Within the small letter of 1 Timothy, containing only 113 verses, 14 of them are dedicated to the care of widows, That's 12.38%. God cares about the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the weak. So since this is an issue that is of great importance to God, why? Because of who he is. Psalm 65 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widow is God. It's who he is. It defines his character. This is who he is as God. He is the father to the fatherless. He's the protector of the widows. And because we belong to God, because we are his children, and we are taking on his family resemblance, then what God cares about is what we care about. So honoring The true widows in the congregation led by Timothy will involve caring for the true widow, providing for her, seeing that her family cares for her if she has family, and teaching about the importance of caring for one who is a widow. But the text does tell us to be discerning. Honor those who are true widows. Let's look at what Paul is trying to teach and help us to understand about who the true widows are. Look at verse 4 with me. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So a true widow is a widow who is truly alone. She has been abandoned by her family or she has no family at all. The primary responsibility for care of the widow belongs to their family, their blood family, their children, their grandchildren. And notice with me that they are, as they care for their widowed member of their household, they are showing, learning to show godliness in their lives, in their actions by caring for the widow. And it's pleasing to God when he sees them caring for his beloved widow. So the primary person or the primary people responsible for caring for widows is their immediate family, their children and their grandchildren. But if there is a woman who is, does not have this for whatever reason, then she is considered truly a widow. She is truly alone. She is left all alone, and she has set, verse 5 says, her hope on God to be her provider. She has set her hope on God to be her husband, to be her protector. And she continues in this manner of praying daily, constantly crying out to God day and night. So we can see that this woman is a woman who is devoted to God. 
She's set her hope fully on him, and she's praying continually. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus um, told of the widow who was just perpetually crying out to the judge. Remember that story? Kind of pictures this, this woman here in this passage. She's devoted to God. In contrast to verse 6, to one who is self-indulgent, the woman who's living for pleasure, she is, she is living for herself versus living for God. She is putting her hope in her own pleasure and in her own self. So this woman who is truly a woman, truly a widow, is devoted to God and to the people of God. She's a part of the household of God. She's a part of the local body. She is alone and she is devoted to God. This is the woman to whom is truly a widow, and we are called, and the church is being called to honor her. Verse 7 says, Command these things as well, so that they may be without re- reproach. So Timothy is called not only to honor these true widows, he's called to honor them by teaching others these things, what we just talked about, to teach the people within his congregation, that it's their responsibility to provide and care for the members of their own household. It says, verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The honor and care for widows is not just Timothy's responsibility. He is to teach it. And everything we've talked about, the heart of God for the widow, the responsibility of the family, the responsibility of the church to care for those who are alone, so that they, the people of God, will be blameless before God. So if anyone, meaning male or female, does not provide, anyone who's in under the oversight of Timothy, it's kind of a statement of general principle, it's anyone. It's whether you have that widow in your own family or you are a part of the household of God. We're more, we are obligated to one another. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is even worse than an unbeliever. These are harsh words to deny one's own faith, whether it's a blood relative or whether it's, one, whether it's someone of the household of faith, is to deny the faith. What does that mean, to deny the faith? In spite of what we confess with our mouth, our actions are what show what we actually believe in our heart, Right? What you believe is revealed by how you live. So to deny the care of one's own household, to deny providing for one's own household, when a husband refuses to provide for his own household, no matter what he is saying with his words, he is denying that he has any faith at all. These are sobering words. 
So we are called to honor the true widow, to discern who the true widow is. And then once you have discerned who the true widow is, um, Paul continues on and says to enroll this widow, enroll her on a list. So let's look at verse nine together. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years old, of 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. So we already know that this woman is a devoted believer in God. She's a member of the household of faith. She's a part, an active part of that local church community. But in order for her to be enrolled on this list that they had in that context, there were a few additional qualifications. First of all, she had to be 60 and older. There was an age qualification. She had to be older. She also had to have character qualifications. And this list of character character qualifications reminds me a little bit of the qualifications we read in chapter three for elder and deacon. She was to have noble character. Remember, the elders were to be husbands of one wife. Here she is to be a wife of one husband. She had to have faithful, a faithful marriage when she was married. She was to be Um, holding marriage in high esteem and faithful in her marriage. She had to have a reputation of good works. Some of those works that were listed are not all inclusive, but if she had children, she was to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. She was to have shown hospitality. Hospitality was a huge, noble thing as this culture because they didn't have hotels to stay in so as travelers would be traveling and especially you think about within the church context the context of the church paul and other missionaries were traveling around throughout the known world and needing and depending on the hospitality of people in these cities to offer them provision and protection and so part of being a part of the household of God was to offer hospitality so that these people would be safe in these cities and be able to proclaim the gospel. So she would have been a woman who had shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints. This is not necessarily a literal, or it could have been in that cultural context, a literal washing of the feet, but it, it promotes this idea of posture of humble service. She is willing to do the lowest task. She is willing to serve in a way that would be hidden, unseen by others. And she cared for the afflicted. So she had a reputation for her good works, and she was known for every being devoted to good works. So once again, we see that this woman is a woman who is holy with her whole life devoted to her God. She's lived her life expressing her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in acts of love and service to others. And if a woman meets these qualifications, and it is indeed a true widow, she is to be placed on this list and would be now under the protection, the care, and the provision of the church, the leaders, the deacons, the elders of the church. But what about our young widows? He said specifically that you had to be 60. You couldn't be younger than 60. Let's look at what Paul says 
for the young widows. What's to happen to them? Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger women, widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So let's just stop right there before we go on to his encouragement to what these younger widows ought to do, and just kind of break this down a little bit. It's a little bit confusing. But refuse to enroll the younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. I think the NIV adds a little bit of clarity to this passage, because it says that they would incur condemnation for abandoning their former pledge. So it's not talking about their losing their salvation or anything like that. But apparently there was... Something happening in this church where younger women may have been pledging, taking a vow, saying, I'm not going to ever marry. I'm never going to marry again. So perhaps remember earlier in Timothy, we saw that there was some teaching that was creeping into the church that said that um, they were forbidding people to marry. So perhaps some of this idea had started to creep into the church, actually, and there were women thinking that they could be holier, if they would be much more holy if they would vow and pledge not to get married again. And yet in their hearts, they really wanted to marry again. And we know from the word of God that when we make a vow or a pledge, God, God views that as something very serious, right? And so when we make a vow that says, um, Proverbs 20 verse 25 says, it is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. Vows are serious things, and we need to take them seriously, and therefore we need to not take a vow lightly, right? So Paul is, is seeking to protect these young widows from being rash in their vows and incurring condemnation on themselves because they can't live up to the vow that they had made in a moment's time where they, you know, I am just picturing in my mind how sometimes, you know, you're sitting in like maybe um, they were listening to a speaker or something and they were talking passionately about being single and staying single and, and how this would make you holier. And in that moment of emotion, they would say, yes, I want to do this and I'm going to make a vow. Only to later when you leave the momentary emotional moment that, that you were like, oh, I don't really want to live that way. I really want to get married. That's kind of the picture we're getting in this passage of scripture. Their passions are drawing them away and their desire to marry is incurring condemnation because of this vow that they had made. There's another issue that's going on. They can learn, they're learning to be idlers. Learning to be idlers and going about from house to house, not only as idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. There's something in here that I want us to see. They're learning to be idlers. So they have a little too much time on their hands, and they're learning to be idlers. You remember, Paul is really all about learning. It's, what does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is a learner. But it's all about learning the right things. 
In 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn, right? Let a woman learn in quietness and submission, learning from the word of God, learning to be a disciple, learning to be devoted to good works, learning what it means to follow Jesus, learning how it it means to look like Christ and being transformed into his image. But now, with their idle time, they were learning not the word of God, but to be idlers. And that was leading them to bad behavior, to gossip. So it does matter what we learn, doesn't it? Because what we learn affects how we live. And so as an antidote, Paul says in verse 14, rather than this over here, rather than being an idler, learning to be an idler, I would have younger widows marry. Don't make this vow. Marry, bear children, manage your household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. And you can hear Paul's passion in this because it's already happened. It's already happened. Some of the women have already strayed after Satan. They've already followed the, bat, the wrong path. And he wants to protect and, and keep the rest of the widows. Don't go down this path that has already happened for them. Rather, I would have you marry if you have the opportunity. Have children and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if the Lord allows It's not saying that you have to marry and you have to bear children in order to not be a busybody and a gossip. But if the Lord provides a husband for you and if the Lord gives you children because children are a gift from God, then receive it and embrace it and walk in it is what we're hearing in this test. Learn to manage their households. This is not talking necessarily just about the mundane things, although that's included in managing a household. But think Proverbs 31. Think the woman in Proverbs 31 who was managing the family business. She is managing this household and she is making sure the operations of a household are running smoothly. This is the call. This is the encouragement that Paul is having for the younger widows. He is trying to free these women to live their lives with purpose, the purpose that God designed for them, and to bring glory and honor to God. So Paul wraps up his instructions for honoring widows with one more appeal to believing women. Verse 16 says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. If any believing woman has relatives, and I think that this expands again to if you're a believing woman, whether it's your family or whether it's your church family, care for the widow. This is our ministry. This is our calling. This fits into what God has been saying all the way through Timothy about what it is he wants his female image bearers to be committed to, to be dedicated to, to the care of the other women in this household. This fits with Titus 2 and how women are called to care and teach one another. 
This is the calling that God has on our wives and it's a, our lives, and it's a noble calling for women to be tasked with this responsibility to see that widows are cared for in the church. Why? So that the church may not be burdened. So that the church may not be burdened. The church cannot handle financially, physically, all the needs that are in the church, right? It cannot. It's impossible. The church's primary calling is not social. It's not. The church's primary calling is to proclaim the gospel to the nations to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, to be a light in the darkness, pushing back the forces of evil. But social relief, social help is a part of what the church does through the members of the congregation, through you and through me. We, individuals within the church, can and should see to the care of those who are the most vulnerable of our society. And today, we expand the category of widow to orphans, to those who are single parents, to refugees, to victims of calamity. Whatever the needs are, we as individuals step up and care for those who are in need. Let's continue on. Moving on from the responsibility toward the widow, Paul continues with his instructions to Timothy on household administration. We saw that the qualification for an elder was to be able to manage his own household, the, the, the administration of his own household. And the reason he had to be able to manage his own household is because he's also managing the household of God. So he goes on in verse 17 saying, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox and when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Notice that it's those who are ruling well. Those who are ruling well and are characterized by godliness, who are teaching and preaching the word of God to you week in and week out, these men are worthy, worthy of double honor. Double honor, those who rule well, are, they are to be esteemed by the congregation. They are to be supported financially. That's what verse 18 is saying. They are to be supported as best as the church can financially. Um, And he uses scripture to back this up. These These are two passages of scripture. The first one is from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, the one about the muzzling the ox. I don't know if you remember in our Deuteronomy study last year, we saw that passage of scripture in there. And this is talking about um, financially supporting your, your elder, your pastor. 
And then the next passage of scripture, the laborer deserves his wages. This is from Luke 10, 7. So he uses both the Old Testament and the New Testament to support that pastors, elders are supposed to be honored, doubly honored. And I want you to stop just a moment and let's recognize that the New Testament was not in existence yet. So how in the world could he have been quoting from Luke chapter 10? This is so beautiful to me. Like, I like love this because this shows us that already those New Testament writings have been circulating to the church throughout the churches. Already the Gospels have been circulating throughout the churches. And already, even before the canonization happened, already they were viewed as Scripture. That's amazing. That should fill you guys with confidence in the word of God that we have. What we have is the word of God. It is scripture. Luke 10, 7 says the laborer deserves his wages. He goes on in the text. So double honor for those who rule well. But then he goes on. In verse 19, it says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two to three witnesses. So an elder is going to be the one with the pastor. They're the ones who are going to be ruling, running the household of God. They're the ones making decisions. They're the ones discerning who the true, elder, the true widows are that are going to be placed on the list. And when they're making decisions... They're preaching, they're teaching, they're making decisions about the administration of the church. That puts them in a precarious position because there are inevitably going to be people who are not happy with what they're doing, right? They're just not. They're not going to be happy with the decisions. We know that when you're a leader, no matter what context you're in, people are going to hate you. And so accusations could come forward against the elders. And there's two protections in here. There is a protection for the elders, that they would not be accused falsely by the people of their congregation, that it would not be just, you know, like somebody who's just mad about a decision. But there's also protection for the congregation in this as well. Because as we know, elders are also sinful human beings that can fall into sin. And there has to be a way for them to be called to account. So it's in both of these are in this passage of Scripture. They are to be charged with, they must have two to three witnesses. Now this is rooted in all of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We saw this in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So there needs to be two to three witnesses. Jesus said this also in Matthew 18. But if he does not listen, speaking of somebody who is in sin, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians 13.1 says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So within Scripture, there is always the parameters of two or three witnesses in order to establish a charge. So in this text as well, it says the same thing. There needs to be evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is supposed to be, the, Timothy is being called on that evidence of two or three witnesses to 
seriously evaluate, to judge the situation, to hear the situation, and to make a judgment on this. There is a process of examination. And if the process of examination proves true, then verse 20 tells us what to do. As for those who persist in sin, so through the, the process of examination, it begins to be very clear that the elder is in error, that he is in sin, he, he's confronted, and if he refuses to repent of his sin, and he's persisting in it, rebuke them in the presence of all. It needs to be public so that the rest may stand in fear so that we can learn from this. Again, we, we reflect back on just the whole of the letter. Everything is done in love and for love. Public rebuke, public discipline of somebody who is in authority needs to be done in love in order that they would repent and come back to the Lord. He goes on to say, and I believe that 21 through the end of the chapter really has a lot to do with with this whole idea of examining an elder on the basis of two to three witnesses. Look at this. 21 says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, these are serious words, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So a couple things to point out here. Timothy is under the authority of God, and he is acting under that authority. All of heaven is in this council, if you will. Right? This is the picture I'm getting. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. The elect angels are those who did not follow Satan. They're the ones, that, the good angels, the ones that remained with, on the side of God. They're all, so in the presence of God, before the face of God, the church is conducting its business. Do we ever think about that? We conduct our business in the face of God, under his authority, in the presence of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. And therefore, Timothy, the way you run this church, the way you rule, the way you teach, the way you interact, the way you do pastoral care, the way you take care of the widows, the way you appoint elders and deal with elders must be done without partiality, without prejudging. There is no room for prejudice in the household of God. There is no room for cronyism in the household of God. There is no room for favoritism in the household of God. This is what our text is telling us. This is serious. I think this is why he breaks out in verse 23 and says, don't drink a little water, just put a little wine in your belly because you're sick a lot. I feel bad for Timothy. He's a young man with an inordinate amount of responsibility on his shoulders. And apparently, his stomach bothers him. Apparently, he might have some ulcers going on there. I don't know. But he's having ailments. It's a stressful job. And in the middle of the way that Paul is telling him to 
care for the congregation that has been entrusted to him. He says, don't forget to care for yourself. Don't forget to take care of your own health. You need to take care of your own health. Stop drinking a little water, drink a little wine. Take care of your own body. But this is a sobering responsibility. He goes on in verse 22 and says, Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part of the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So again, the laying on of hands is speaking of the elders. It's speaking of um, the call of elders to oversee the church. There's this sense that there's laying on of hands in that there's an ordination that happens. Don't be hasty in this. I think we talked about that a lot when we were addressing the qualifications for elders in chapter 3. When we look at those list of qualifications, this takes time to discern, right? This takes time. Don't rush into it. I'm going to jump down. It says in verse 24 and 25, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. There's a sense in which it only takes time in order to discover the true quality and character of a person. It takes a while to show the fruit of what's going on in the heart. So take your time so as not to partake in the sins of others. In other words, as Timothy is laying on of hands, as he is ordaining others, in some ways by him doing so, if they were to fall into public sin later, it would be kind of on his account. He's responsible for that. That's what the text means. Keep yourself pure. Take your time. Don't be hasty. Don't show partiality. Don't prejudge. Let's continue on and conclude our time together with chapter 6, verse 1. Our final instructions are, how are we, or those in the household of God, who are under the yoke of slavery to behave towards their masters? Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. All right, so in about three weeks, the very last day of Bible study, we're going to talk a lot more about this relationship between master and slave when we study the book of Philemon. But for now, since we're running out of time, let's just look briefly at um, what the text actually just says. So those who are under a yoke, a bondservant, and we, in the, we would carry this forward today to um, those who are working in the field, like just work, you know, you're base, you have a ser- you're, you're serving in your place of employment. So we would translate that this today to those who are working. This is how you are to act toward those who are your employers. So those who are under the yoke are to honor, to regard as their own masters as worthy of all honor. Remember, all honor 
means that you are to esteem them. Your attitude is to be one that shows that they are valuable as a person. And this goes even for the unbelieving master or the believing master. But, Paul is saying, especially if you have a believing master. Here's the thing. A slave's status has changed, right? When they became born again, when they became into the, the household of God. His status has changed. In Jesus Christ, there is no slave or free. Meaning that they're equal in the eyes of God. They equally have the opportunity for salvation. They are family. His master is now his brother. But this does not mean he no longer serves his master. It, means, it does not mean that he is no longer called to honor his master. Instead, what Paul is saying, doubly honor your master if he is a believer. Based upon your newfound relationship, even more so, serve all the more. Because not only is he your master, but he's your brother. He's a believer and he's beloved. So out of love now, it's not just out of service. Now it's out of love. This man or this woman is called to serve and to bring benefit to those who they are working for, those who they are serving. So let's tie this whole passage up. Members of God's household treat others with honor. Within the household of God, our relationships are rooted in honor and purity. Let a true widow be honored. Let an elder be shown double honor. And let all who are under a yoke as a bondservant honor their master. Honor is the thread that ties this whole passage together. And as members of God's household walk increasingly outdoing one another in honor, we are actually honoring God. And we begin to take on the family resemblance. We begin to look like Jesus. Consider Jesus, our older brother, who repeatedly, publicly honored those bearing the marks of community shame. Remember Zacchaeus. Jesus honored him by going and eating with him. And salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus. Remember the woman caught, caught in adultery? How Jesus honored her, lifted her out of her shame publicly. Remember how Jesus honored the woman who washed his feet with her hair. The unnamed woman in the Pharisee's house. Jesus honored her, lifted her up. Remember how Jesus honored Mary, who loved to sit at his feet and learn from him. He defended her. Remember how Jesus honored his own mother. While he hung on his cross, he saw his mother standing there, a widow, alone, and he saw that she was cared for. There wasn't a person that Jesus came into contact with that he did not honor in some way. And when we honor others, we too reflect his image. Again, consider Jesus, 
who entered into our shame in order that we could be honored. Jesus, the Son of God, exalted King of heaven and earth, was born under scandalous, shameful circumstances. He was born in poverty. He was raised in Nazareth. He was raised on the wrong side of the tracks. He was considered, Nazareth was considered the ghetto of Israel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was the saying of the day. Jesus, the holy, sinless Son of God, was publicly shamed. At a mock trial, he was publicly stripped naked. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was mocked. And he was crucified outside the gate in shame. He entered into our shame. Why? So that we could experience honor. So that he could lift us out of shame so that he could clothe us in his righteousness, so that we could be saved, made holy by his own blood. He entered our shame so that we could be honored. First Peter 2, 6-7 through 7 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Remember how we started? How do we get in the household of God? By believing in his name. And when we believe in his name, we receive honor. We are members of an honored household. How could we ever treat one another in any other way but with the honor that we have been given? Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah as he speaks of how God honors his people, his bride, the church. Isaiah 61, and we know that these words Jesus spoke himself, saying, this is about me. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them, listen, listen to the words of honor, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Picking up in verse six, it says, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That's what he's talking about. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Psalm 62, 7 says, Our salvation and our honor depend on God. He has lifted us out of shame and dressed us in honor through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And from this place, from the honor that he has placed on us, we live honoring one another to the glory of God. Now, ladies, go. Outdo one another in honor. Let's pray. 
We thank you, Lord, for lifting us out of our shame, for honoring us, for allowing us to, for calling us to be in members of your household. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the honor that you have put us in and that we would live lives that honor one another well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.